Shut up and sit down. What's up and welcome to the Performance Tree Podcast, where we connect the dots in strength and conditioning. Our goal is to educate, evaluate, and explore all aspects of holistic athletic development. What's up? Episode 10 of the Performance Street Podcast. I'm not going to be that podcast host that talks about how we don't regularly record this and then want to make a comeback over and over again because we take like two months to put out an episode. So we're rolling into this. I'm here with Connor. What's up, Connor? We're back. The Revival. The Revival. I see you just did it. And Matt Young. Matt Young is a Young strength coach from Waco, Texas. He's here in the Houston area working at Warriors Baseball Academy, correct? Yes, sir. That's correct. Warriors, Warriors Baseball Academy. He's a super intelligent guy that I got to sit down with and talk with a couple, like a week ago. It was a week ago. Yeah. I don't know. I'm really yeah, bad with time. Ago. Last yep. Saturday. Yeah. Yep. And just kind of shoot the, the ish about training with. So I figured this would be a great episode to have. Um, yeah. Give yourself, you know, like, Brief background, very brief background. Yeah, tell the so. tell the people about you. All right, yeah. So uh, originally from Waco, Texas, grew up playing baseball. I was a pitcher in high school. Uh, pitched in college for two years at a junior college in Colorado, uh, Lamar Community College. Um, growing up, didn't really have much of a strength and conditioning background. We did not have a strength and conditioning coach at our high school. We do now. I wish we would have had that when I was there. Besides my senior year but uh yeah i i was more on the baseball side and then i started studying a lot about strength and conditioning because i was small and weak and i threw 76 from the left side so i kind of wanted to figure things out and uh yeah started researching strength conditioning and pitching backgrounds and you know here we are today just you know went to college at baylor university after i quit playing uh graduated with a bachelor's in kinesiology uh interned with the Arizona Diamondbacks for about two months in a learning opportunity uh, during that undergrad time and worked at a private facility as a development coach there as well. So that's pretty much a short summary of the background. So did you get like shoved into strength conditioning or I mean like every I want to say this but every strength coach I know essentially was somebody who wasn't as good as they thought they were at sports that wanted to do something to try and kind of fix that almost, or was just super passionate about training in your case, you know, wanted to be better at sports. Did you get into strength and conditioning on purpose or were you kind of shoved into that? Cause you said player development coach, and I know you were a ball player. Uh, did it, did you just like start training people and then you're like, Oh, I'm a strength coach. Cause I, I just, I know besides the one opportunity, you just, this is something that you kind of got involved with then. So just go, go into detail about that for me. Right. No. Yeah. Uh, I think, you kind of hit the nail on the head. So like I started out as a guy that I really wasn't that good of a ball player. You know, I'm a five, eight, five, nine left-handed pitcher topped at 85, uh, did not throw hard. wasn't going to get drafted the stuff I had and, uh, I needed to get bigger and stronger. And then over time, when I quit playing, I started training guys. Um, I just kind of realized between programming, throwing side and strength side that, you know, after all the experience I had lifting and then, just a lot of hours of studying from a ton of different guys in the industry. You know, I, I was like, okay, well, I'm not bad at this. And then uh, a guy that we both know, 
um, one of your players at St. Thomas. Uh, he was like my first guy. I started program probably three, four years back. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of stuff and it kind of stuck with him and he worked pretty hard. Granted. Might um, I say, might I add real quick, Jeff is, yeah. is a dude. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how much credit you're willing to take for that, but Jeff is, is a pretty, uh, impressive physical specimen for a division three baseball player. That's certain. So whatever you're doing works or whatever. Yeah, I wouldn't run with her. I, that, I mean, that goes into a good question. How much of an impact do you think you can have on some of these kids? So that's a great question. I think I think it really depends. You know, the thing with Jeff is, granted, he's a huge specimen, but he's also like one of the hardest workers you're going to find. Like he's kind of the perfect guy you can coach as a strength coach because he's going to listen to you. He's going to shoot off ideas. He's not dumb, so he's not just going to roll with everything you say. Um, you know, he's he's just a perfect embodiment of an athlete that you kind of want to train. And, you know, you got a gradient. So you've got the guys that sometimes aren't always going to buy in completely to what you're doing. And that, you know, turns into where you got to build relationships in a different way with those guys. And, uh, you know, the more you do that, I think you can have an impact on them, whether it be in their sport or in just their life in general. Like they're going to find a way to want to work hard for you if you build that right relationship with each guy. Luckily, I had that background with Jeff already being he was a roommate, uh, best friend of me. So, I mean, you know, we had a good relationship already. And I think that's part of the reason why he's bought into it so much. So, yeah, that's, that's uh, I, I love that. I love that straightforward. You get a kid like Jeff who isn't, doesn't want to do anything himself. He's just too lazy to learn about training. So his roommate does it all for him. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> exactly. So, but on that note, that gets me thinking. So there's a lot of us, I shouldn't say us, I don't really include myself in this, but people who kind of are in the weight room side that get involved, like Connor's an example of this, like somebody who's never played basketball, probably at any, any sort of competitive level. So like you being whoa, whoa. in this, Hey, I don't know, maybe like AAU back in the day or like a couple leagues in the Y when we were in the fifth grade back, or whatever. Back I don't in know. the day when I didn't hit a growth spurt and I just, you know, stopped growing and all five, six of me just realized I wasn't meant to play basketball. Anyway, continue. (laughs) Just got me, got me thinking that, do you think that you being a baseball guy, like recently, like as soon as you stopped playing, you get into the performance or player development uh, scene. Do you think that that gave you an advantage early on? Yeah, definitely. I'd say so. I mean, I, I think, I think it really just depends on how big a baseball guy you are and how big you are into the development side of it. Like, you know, any random baseball player can walk in. You see it all the time, too. There's a lot of guys who just might have had a playing background that, you know, like to advertise their playing background. They're going to be like, okay, I did this, that. So uh, I'm here to train your athletes, and they might not be good at it for anything. But at the same time, you know, you have different guys on that side that are maybe more bought into the development side and are wanting to push the industry a little farther into the direction of, you know, elite human performance. And, uh, I mean, that's where I was, you know, in the mindset of anyway, when I was probably a senior in high school, junior in high school, I started working out with driveline throwing protocols. And I, you know, bought the driveline six week lifting program. And I started studying that and then, uh, messed around with the one by 20 method for a while. And, you know, a a ton of other different methods I just kind of experimented with. And, um, 
Yeah, I, I think it can play a role if you're willing to look at everything in, in a holistic manner and not just count something out based off of a previous belief. So, I mean, that's that's what I tried to do. I, you know, when I, at my junior college, we used all that stuff. Our head coach and our assistant coach, they were huge into development aspects of training. And, you know, they're both not at the college anymore. They're both in the professional ranks now with the Yankees and with the Rangers. So, I mean, yeah, I, th- I think that definitely helped put my culture a little farther and my perspective a little deeper into training. That's where I think baseball gets ahead of the rest of the world and player development is that a lot of that happens and you kind of get sports coaches and performance coaches kind of working together on things like that. Like you see a lot of like weighted ball throwing is a great example of that. Like driveline often, often, often gets integrated with the training portion of the day. And it kind of is, what do you want, Connor? What did you guys can use weighted balls, but I can't use weighted basketballs. You you can, you just choose not to. You think it's a gimmick until somebody starts to sell it now. All right, brother. We're like you literally have an avenue. You could be driveline basketball. Sell it to Kyle Body. Yeah, shit. You'd buy into it. Yeah. Well so what's what's like a typical day look like? Um like training session for you guys. So at the place we're at now, I usually go in. Uh it's it's different right now, obviously, because it's in season. So a lot of our high school guys are you know, not coming into late in the afternoon if they're not playing the game or college guys are out of town. Um, we have some little kids that we're working with that are also playing spring ball, but you know, they're everybody's at school. So I'll get to the facility around 12 30, one o'clock each day, you know, experiment with my workout myself and just try new things out. Uh three thirty we start, um, run the kids through a dynamic warm-up. Um, we have them bear crawl. We're progressing them in uh, crawling variations right now in time and allowing them to uh, just get better at crawling. Some of them are still trying to understand it. So most of them hate it still, but just trying to progress it slowly. Um, you know, we have everybody do a dead hang and then three days a week, we do some sort of uh, change of direction, sprinting, acceleration type work. Um, so like a Monday for, for instance, it's more, a lot of flight tends. So right now it's progressing them in volume with the sprinting. So they'll do, you know, they started out a few weeks ago running like six 20 yard flies or 20 yard buildups, 10 yard fly. Um, now they're at 30 yards and we've progressed from like four of those to five or six of them now, uh, what Wednesday Wednesday, we're changing it up now. So we used to do like a little mirror drill where you'd, you know, every guy would shuffle against the next guy. Um, and then, you know, some start stop acceleration things where I'm standing at the back of the cage or the parking lot where we run and I drop a ball and they try and stop on a dime. If I pick the ball up, they accelerate again past me. But now we're playing some games. So, you know, allowing them to have a little more fun with it and get in, get deeper into it and just make them move like athletes instead of just trying to have the guy master a drill. So a ton of 40 to 50 yard buildups right now and just allowing them to, you know, get to longer distances, maybe have a better chance, obviously hitting top speed the farther they go. But um, right now we have a lot of young guys that either haven't made their high school team or, um, you know, are not good enough to play at the college level yet, or even the guys that, are are on a little different type programs but yeah i mean in day in general 330 start um we have three groups of throughout the day 335 30 730 and everybody goes through that warm-up 
at their allotted time slot and then you know they'll throw and then they'll come in and do their lifting actual portion of the workout so are you involved with the throwing that they're doing right now or just in the off season so in the off season i'll be more involved in the throwing right now i kind of just manage the weight room but i do go out there if like the weight room is kind of slow there might not be anybody in there maybe like one person that's doing a lift that i don't really have to watch heavily um and i'll go out there and I, i'll assist some guys with the throwing maybe come up with some drills i or uh you know just just play around some kids are different obviously most kids all kids are different when it comes to throwing proportions of the drills like some kids need to relax a little more some kids suck at blocking their front leg some kids can't get into scap retraction or uh are stuck in like upward rotation manner and their arm doesn't move well whatever it may be there's there's a ton of things so when i can i'm just trying to go out there and help some of the kids and just watch them talk to them get you know get a feel for where their headspace is at with the two so so with the throwing stuff that you guys do right now i know like you just said you're not in charge obviously i know that but right the whole philosophy behind say i mean honestly say you had the wheel for this is a lot of the stuff you do drill wise like are you one to add constraints or are you one who kind of just sticks to a certain set of drills that you like like how do you create the best feels i guess the best motor learning environment for those guys to pick up what you deem to be a proper throwing motion, if you will. Right. Right. So I, yeah, what I deem to be a proper throwing motion is more of an idea of working towards a kid's strengths and weaknesses. You know, it's kind of meeting them in the middle, like some kids, I, you know, I'm not going to throw the same as a kid that's six, five and, you know, 195 to 220 like even the kid that's 65 190 is not going to throw the same as the kid that's 65 230 because different sizes different weights classes whatever it may be you know everybody's going to move different based off of size and anatomical structure and all that so i mean it, it's more constraint-based approach really you got to see what the kid is good at and you got to see what he's not good at and you got to you know kind of pick apart and dissect for some kids what they might need to get to a higher velocity or to keep their arm healthier. You know, you can't truly prevent injury, but um, you can do your best to mitigate the risk a little bit and minimize it. So I, I, with a lot of the kids we have right now, it's really just, you know, building volume with them. Like a lot of them have never been exposed to throwing programs like this. They've never thrown to this extent, to this frequency, to this, whatever it may be. So, you know, a lot of it's kind of, hands-off work and letting them throw the weighted balls a little bit and the weighted balls will start changing how they throw a little bit you know naturally as they throw it more and um you know if, if they don't get better at it over time you know we start interacting with them more and more and seeing you know okay well what can we do differently right here so let's say your arm mo- motion is like you know it's really stabby or something like that we might implement like a figure eight drill to do something allow their arm to relax get into a little better position uh that also might you know clear up some timing issues with maybe the hips and the shoulders separating into a decent position and all that too so i mean there's so many avenues you can go with it but yeah constraint-based approach and allowing them to just build volume over time i like that yeah at our place i think the number one cue we give the guys who are sub 13 years old is just throw the ball as hard as you can Right. I think that's 90% of the coaching I do with the little guys. 
And it's amazing to me how parents will come up and say like, my kid made like a five mile an hour jump in like the last three weeks. I'm like, yeah, cause he's actually never thrown anything hard in his life. Like you guys were honestly telling me when I sent you videos of me doing a couple <laughs> drop steps, like, why don't you just try throwing hard? And you know what? To, to a certain extent, that stuff works big time. If you want to get right. faster, why not just try to run faster? And well, sometimes, no, right. sometimes that's all it takes. Right. You know, yeah. Going straight into that, like it, it's amazing how that, how easy or how m- much common sense that should be, but it's not because everybody wants to look at, you know, a different area, especially for pitchers, man. Pitchers just, I, I think the worst thing that I've ever seen happen and it happened to me, it's just how the industry has made pitchers not athletic. Like they, they label them as a pitcher and all of a sudden you have to move a certain way and you have to be at a certain angle. You got to hit a certain balance point. Like at the very top, you can't drift. Uh, you got to point your arm this way or else you're going to get hurt. Whatever, whatever the different thing may be. And it's like, yo, you got to throw strikes. Okay. Well, that's focusing on like right now. Like if I'm eight years old and I'm throwing hard as hell, like I don't think it's really going to matter because I'm not going to really look back at my eight U championship. Like, but I, I'll tell you what, what happened to me was more of an idea of, you know, I was a guy that got taught to throw strikes and I threw a lot of strikes, you know, I'd, I'd strike a lot of guys out at 74, but I'd never get any looks because I threw 74. And then I actually started trying to throw the ball hard late and I got up to low eighties and that got me a spot somewhere. Thank God. But you know, it's just, it's, it's just how the industry is just still so, uh, easy to turn a blind eye to the fact that throwing hard is actually good and it's not as bad as people think like it's kind of like the idea of like the same thing as sprinting like if i'm if i'm told to run fast people some people might you know be like okay well if you run too fast you're going to pull something or whatever and that's a just ridiculous thought because at the same time let's say you're out in the wild this is this is totally completely you know fake train of thought but like if you're out in the wild and you get chased by a wild animal and you're running 100 percent, i don't think your body's really going to think about oh god i might tear a hamstring because i'm running 100 percent. like that's that's, that's just, a great drill idea actually is just to let the tigers loose you know yeah no did, no, did exactly. you did you warm up before the t- you let the tigers loose? <laughs> <laughs> feed the cats whatever his name is yo honestly that's a that's a great point that i hadn't really considered because it is funny that everybody in baseball is really just trying to sell something uh to you know like you have to move in this certain path or like some kind of gimmick but sprinting i think is a great analogy for that like maybe you do have like awful patterns and you end up getting hurt but at the same time i don't think if you have you know like no muscle on your body and you try and run hard one time i don't think that's going to take you out completely no no it's just about workload i would say right there right like it's not like it's not like i'm gonna purposely let a tiger out and run 100 percent seven days a week you know five times a day i'm not gonna get a rest period before i try and run from the tiger again like like he's either gonna kill me or he doesn't like it's 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 just you know with baseball it's it's especially on the throwing side it's just building up workload like no kid has ever tried to throw the ball hard i guarantee you doing it once isn't gonna hurt them but if they continue to do it like and throw hard all the time with no supervision or no understanding of how, you know, you're supposed to build up a workload and not necessarily warming up. That's 
not even the gist of it, but understanding like if I've always thrown 65 to 70% effort and then I start always throwing a hundred percent effort, well, that's going to cause some issues eventually. So like, there's gotta be a, a, a place where you bridge that gap a little bit. So do, do you guys look at, uh, I'm just, I'm just thinking here cause right. Baseball is not my world. Um, <laughs> but do you guys look at like velocity drop-offs or anything like that for like gauging when to have people stop throwing? Right. Or is it just like purely like, okay, you're doing X throws this week, you know, increase 5% the next week or go up or. So uh, how right. do you guys gauge volume? So I'm going to, I'm going to give my little two cents and I'll let Matt explain exactly how he does it probably. But okay. a lot of the drill work you would do with like, uh, like weighted ball throwing example wise, um, your, your velocity drop-offs and throwing don't happen like they do in like full total body power development. Um, it's not necessarily the same thing, if that makes sense. Like you can produce power, especially in like, if you can build up a decent amount of capacity in throwing, you can like, you see major league baseball players do it all the time, go like hundred pitch outings. And in the very last inning of their outing, they're still like almost still cranking PRing and VLO. Uh, it's just the, I don't want to go on a rant or say anything stupid or wrong here <laughs> before I keep going, but I'll let Matt talk about how he does it. Really. There are no like two drop-offs like that necessarily. No. Right. I, I think, um, I think you're, it's, it's going to take a lot for you to see like a true drop-off. Like if a guy's like say 85, for example, most of the time, and he somehow drops off to like, you know, 76, like that's a problem. Um, if, if I drops me five to 82, that's not a huge you know, deal depending on if he's just been stuck at it for a while or not, you know, guys, you know, when they throw, they're going to sit in a pretty, some guys are in more condensed range. Some guys might sit a mile to two off and some guys might sit, you know, five miles per hour apart from, from a game. So it's, it's really understanding what guy is what right there. And, um, when it comes to tracking their volume, I, the biggest thing I've found is, you know, allowing them to throw and get a feel for you know how much they need to throw a day and a lot of it's explaining to this these kids you know how how they should structure their throwing and just allowing them to have a little bit of autonomy to it all right um so you want to start talking about sort of the skill skill acquisition side of things for pitching yeah so um a lot of the skill acquisition work i've done in terms of just studying the model was through uh prescript with Killian Hamilton, Jordan Shallow, and all those guys. Uh took a skill acquisition course with Killian for about six weeks last year and um, you know, learned about all that. You know, obviously with skill acquisition, you got three models, which is cognitive associative autonomous. Um and so the biggest thing with that is just, you know, breaking down the three and understanding what each one does. So cognitive, you know, it's like being able to understand just exactly what you're doing, right? It's like a baby understanding what a crawl is. Like they, they look at the ground and their brain picks up what their body is doing in relation to space and in relation to, you know, everything around them. So, uh, associative is just starting to get better and better at the skill it's Self, you know, increasing frequency and increasing volume in simple terms. And, you know, it's like it's a baby going from crawling two yards to crawling 20 yards um, over time. Like they start to understand what they're doing. They might have some stability required with it. And then autonomous becomes 
them understanding exactly what their body is doing in space. Like, you know, it, it's, it's just allowing them to break everything down and do it more, um, after that associative phase. So in, in simple terms of pitching, it'd be like cognitive is understanding what I'm doing when I throw a ball or understanding, you know, okay, my arm comes up as I get into this throwing motion and then associative is doing it more. It's now internalizing and externalizing something with the cue. Um, so like now I'm throwing a ball either to my partner or to the wall. If I'm throwing a, a weighted plyo ball, something like that. And then autonomous is just getting them to, you know, start to understand more and more where their body is in space in the simplest terms. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's like teaching the guy to ride a bike. So it's, it's not really that different. You know, they, they get on a bike or a tricycle and they have stability attached to it. Um, they understand that the wheels have stability attached to it. They take off the wheels once they feel stable enough on the tricycle. And then they start going on a bicycle and riding. So with throwing, it's just, it's just understanding that these kids might take a little bit of time, um, you know, having to learn what their body's doing. A lot of the kids that we see don't really have a good feel for what their body does. They don't know how it works in space. They don't know what it's doing because they've never been taught to even think about that. They're more taught to listen about what they, what they're being told it's doing. And, um, you know, a lot of the kids that come to us already have, uh, ingrained motor skills that they're already kind of attached to that is really hard to break sometimes after you see them for the first time when they're maybe 14, 15 years old. So you kind of got to go backwards and, you know, reverse chain everything. And, um, yeah, so skill acquisition model with those guys is just increasing them in volume and letting the, the weight, um, take them into ranges that they don't understand talking to them and trying to, this is the biggest thing for me because I, I don't think a kid can just throw all the time, like not say a word to him and he gets better at it. He can, but a lot of the kids are not going to truly think outside the box and think in terms of what their body's doing. They're just going to throw the ball because they're being told to throw the ball. So what you got to do is, you know, guide them by asking questions with them about what they think their body's doing, or maybe, you know, allow them to, uh, answer those questions in an open-ended way, not just yes or no. Like they, there needs to be like a dialogue there that you build with the kid to help them further understand what they're doing. I love it. We talked about doing that skill acquisition course literally after we watched the K Raj presentation from the summit. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a great course. I definitely recommend it. Prescript is awesome. What they do. Killian's a smart dude. So is Jordan and, uh, had some small dialogue with Killian besides that. And, you know, I'm definitely probably going to get ready to take their coaching certification courses at some point, you know, their prescript level one and twos and all that eventually down the road. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's an awesome course for sure. This guy is so anti the system Connor too. He doesn't even have a CSCS yet. I don't. Hey, that's okay. Yep. Yeah. That's okay. Yep. If he's, if he's not going to college, you don't need it. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, like, it is literally a contest. Yeah. I'm yeah. curious with, with that course, did they talk about the, um, like the four stages of learning at all, like unskilled, unconscious, unskilled, conscious, skilled, unconscious, and, um, skilled, unconscious. 
Yeah, they talked about it a little bit. They had different stages in terms of um, what, like, the name of it was. So it was like conscious competition. It wasn't like conscious competence. Competence. That's the, that's yeah, it was like operational, pre-operational, concrete operational, and uh, all these phases. Okay. So it's basically yeah. like what 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 you have to. What I took a lot from it was how when Killian talked about those stages of learning, that you know when most people study those things in the school setting or maybe on the outside, they see it in more terms of uh, of years of just a person's life, right? So it's like these these operational stages last from zero to two years and then two to seven years and seven to 11 years and then 11 and up um, in terms of age. Right. But what a lot of people don't take from that is the fact that that can be newly applied basically in every skill that a person can learn. So like the training age is just the same as the, as the actual stage itself. So if I have a guy that's 15 years old, that has no background, he's basically in that zero to two year stage of that skill. So you have to kind of meet them where they're at and understand that cognitively, the kid might be a little older, but in terms of the skill, cognitively, they're completely brand new to it. It's like teaching a baby how to do something. So you have to kind of work backwards and reverse chain it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes, you know, like, like, like I said, you know, they, you, they have a cognitive idea of what they're doing. They understand what a baseball is. They understand how to throw a baseball in terms of what process is going to throwing a baseball. It's, you know, moving your body and letting the ball come out forward. Uh, they don't, they don't understand how it works in space. So you got to build the volume. And then that becomes the associative phase where they start building more and more. And then the autonomous phase is when you can, you know, you kind of can cue them a little less and they're a little more stabilized internally and mentally, and they start doing it on their own. Did they ever speak on just, this is a curious thing for me. And if you don't know the answer, you don't have to answer me, obviously, but did they speak on somebody who may be like more generally physically prepared in that same instance, like would an individual who has like more of an athletic background and more opportunities to explore different things, learning a new skill for the first time, do they have any advantage in that? Yeah, they they spoke on it a little bit. Uh, I can't remember for the life of me what all Killian said in that terms from what my understanding of it was, you know, you have a guy who might be a little more physically dominant. And what you're going to see is those guys are going to pick up the skill faster. They're just a little more gifted. Um, they're they're going to fly through those stages a little faster and just, you know, start to have a better grip of things. Right. It's, it's like teaching a guy like Jeff um, something he's never done before. He's going to pick up on it fairly quickly. But a guy like one of my 15-year-olds, if you were to teach him the same stuff, it's going to take him probably three times as long to pick up what he's trying to do. So it, it's I think it just kind of turns into breaking down each kid where they are and understanding how fast you can move along those stages based off of capabilities. Do you ever think about going to college strength conditioning ever? I thought about it for a while. Um it's funny. So when I actually left Lamar, I was offered the, uh, like a volunteer assistant coaching position. I might've been overseeing the strength and conditioning aspect. If I would have stayed, decided not to, because, uh, I just wanted to come back home for a little bit and get my degree. So, uh, I've thought about it, but at the same time, I'm just not sure. I've heard some good things about the college level. I've heard some negative things about it. So I'm still in between, it's not a door that's closed. It's just not something I'm actively 
looking into, I guess you could say. Yeah, I think that's a, you know, wherever you're at, if you're at the right place, I think it's great. But if you're, if you're not at the right place, then it's, I think it's a lot of people just uh, trying to inflate their egos a little bit, maybe. Right. We were, uh, we, we were not at the right place. That's why, uh, and I can say that openly right now. That was, you know, besides the fact that you get thrown to the wolves a little bit and you get to figure out a lot of things on your own. And granted, there were some great people that I met through that experience. Of course, I wouldn't be here doing this today if, if it wasn't that like that. But, you know, uh, you can't, you can't not put any effort or resources into an entire department of your university and expect it to be any bit of quality, regardless of the people involved. You could have the best staff on planet earth, but you can treat that staff like garbage and not give them any input or resources or, you know, wherewithal to do their thing. And there's, they're going to be a bad staff. (laughs) That's, and that's ultimately where college misses the mark in quite a few circumstances. Well, that's the, uh, that's the essentially what was going to happen with the possession I was going to take where they had plans to renovate the weight room, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of dollars to renovate the weight room. But it's like you have one coach for football and then two other full-time coaches and one part-time coach. Like, how does that make any sense? But you're going to go renovate the weight room. Yeah. Give me the rack from the 1980s and pay me 20,000 more dollars a year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, like, right. like bump this, bump this salary up, or literally, you guys could hire five more people. Yeah. No, hundred like, percent. I shit. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, not even, not even a guy that's worked in college setting, obviously, yet. But it, it just, truth be told, I mean, if you're not feeling like you're invested in as a coach, I mean, coaches are still people too, man. You gotta, mm-hmm. you know, we gotta live in some aspect. We gotta be able to do things to our extent too, and. You know, if, if you, if it's actively being shown that you're not being invested yeah. in, it's kind of hard to grow a program and make it quality. I mean, that's just, well, the there's, truth of it. I don't, I don't know where, well, I know I saw, I saw this from Gary V, not a huge Gary V guy, but I thought this was very accurate where he was talking about, I don't know if, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think he reposted us. I don't know. I don't know. But so essentially he was talking about um, entrepreneurs, how they get annoyed when their employees don't work as hard as them. It's like, well, you're the boss. You're making X amount of dollars. Your employees making fifteen dollars an hour. Why do you expect them to work as hard as you? Right. Like, if you expect them to work this hard, like, show them what they're worth. Right. I think it's funny that you say that, and this is something I think could also even be applied into the training aspect from a coach to a kid. Right. Like, if the kid doesn't feel valued, he's not going to work as hard. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you got to show a kid that he's valued. You got to be able to, uh, you know, show him that he's doing good stuff or that, uh, what he's buying into is worth it because a lot of the kids, what I see especially is it's not that they don't work hard because maybe they're lazy or they just don't want to. Some of them are like that, but a lot of them just don't have any purpose. They don't see an insight. They don't really know exactly what their end goal is. So, you know, being able to talk to them and motivate them and, you know, walk the line between congratulating them and hyping them up at their biggest moments and allowing them to not get too cocky from that one big moment is a good line to walk in terms of the training aspect too. I think it just applies in that common sense area, like down the line in a chain and, you know, everybody's got to be valued to truly get a good effort out of somebody. I think that's been the hardest part about private sector strength conditioning for me thus far is because you go from a situation where 
the athletes have to, right? Like they, right. they, they yeah. have to, they have to be present in those things. So there's, there's some times where it's like, you want to kind of get on somebody, but then you got to realize who's writing your paycheck every week. Right. It's like maybe I, you know, like maybe if you don't want to squat today, we don't squat. That's been the weird, the weird difference about the whole ordeal is you almost have to like, let some things go per right. se. Uh, in in sacrifice of like you know the perfect athlete or whatever you view the ideal athlete or the ideal training plan there is granted i know there is no ideal training plan but like whatever whatever the intent was for the day you know sometimes you have to kind of let those things go to keep uh some kids happy especially the younger ones because they don't even get it i just it's just me being crazy i guess but right no little kids it's completely different like you know we have the little kids that we have show up maybe once a week and some kids skip the week and might not show up until the next week or two later. And it's like, okay, well, you know, as much as I would have loved to have you there all three weeks and now you're slightly behind maybe in the training plan, you're also like 10 years old. So I think you can afford to miss like a week because <laughs> the truth is, is like, you're like, you're going to get a lot of stimulus of what you're trying to do outside anyway just by being a kid and playing around hopefully that's what they're doing and not just sitting indoors all day but you know at school they'll have recess and you know a lot of the kids that we work with luckily do you know play baseball outside and maybe do something else and you know they're they're always pretty active so that's the nice part the only part that they're missing is me trying to teach them how to hip hinge like like that's that's the that's kind of the nice aspect of it so like if 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 I only have to teach you how to hip hinge a couple of weeks later and you're able to get it within a year or two and we can start doing some stuff, even though you're like 65% consistent, you know what? That's better than 0%. So you got to kind of keep that in mind because the private sector is just so tough with that. It's It's like, been like one of the wildest challenges in the world because there's groups that I have that are all like the same age, but certain groups are just significantly better than others. Like right. this, this top tier 13 U team I have can come in and I can run like, I mean, almost like a college level program with the kids, not college level in like complexity of movement selection, stuff like that. But I can treat them like, okay, we're going (laughs) to, we're going to sprint and then we're going to do some drills, jump a bit and then get into the weights. And I can like trust them to get their stuff done. And then there's like an 11 U group where I'm just like pulling kids off of each other because they keep like farting and tackling each other. And I'm just like (laughs) playing babysitter and like, maybe we just play a game for the whole hour today. I don't know. Right. And then you get pressure from like adults too. the funniest part about it is like, there's parents that are like, Oh, I want my kid to improve. Like his thoracic mobility. And I'm like, your your kid, your kid doesn't know how to touch his toes without throwing up right now. So I think we should work on that before we get to anything else. Like, I don't know what you want me to do here. I'm not a miracle worker. Really. I like to think I'm a good coach, but I don't know about that. Okay, right. Tur- turning the page a little bit before I'm sure we can talk about that all night. Um, <laughs> turning the page a little bit. Talk to me about the arm. Nah, I don't want to call it arm care stuff. The stuff that you've been doing in the weight room, like the hanging, uh, the long duration ISO work, the mobility stuff that you've kind of integrated into training. Okay, yeah. So um, I got big into javelin anatomy for a while. Uh, still follow his stuff heavily, and I've started to incorporate that more and more uh, after listening to him and guys like Ben Baggett and Ian Walsh talk about how the spine moves in throwers, and you know the spine is a uh, big part. Like if I can't move my spine and my rib cage, and my scap's probably not going to move well, and if my scap doesn't move well around my spine and my rib cage, then my arm's not going to move well. So it's kind of just like a whole weak factor link up the chain. 
And on top of that, you know, we talked about earlier, like the throwing volume and like, how do we keep kids uh, healthy or like, how do we monitor workload? Well, like the hanging there, it, it's, it's funny. I was talking to Clayton Thompson, RS3 sports one day about that. I had a phone call with him for like an hour because they're like their main guy, Liam Doolin is one of my best friends, played college ball with him at Lamar. And um, uh, Liam's got like a torn UCL, like a half torn UCL still, but he throws like 96 with no pain because of the program that Clayton did with him. And I'd talked to Liam about it. I'm like, so how did you get to this? And he's like, well, we, we did a lot of hanging and a lot of other stuff to uh, take the absorption away from the UCL itself, but put it around, around the rest of the arm and the UCL is kind of just like that, that little hip in or that little hinge that holds the door together. Doesn't really do much, but it's just there. And uh, so I talked to Clay and I was like, okay, so what was the hanging about? And he's, he's talking to me about, um, you know, this guy that he researched, studied for however many years about how or uh, what animal had the strongest rotator cuffs and what animal had the strongest forearms and so on and so forth. It was always primates, right? He studied that for, I think, a good 10, 20 years. And, uh, you know, primates swing all the time. They hang from branches. They are always moving and they were found to have the strongest rotator cuffs among mammals. So what I thought there was, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of distraction force that goes into hanging. Um, you know, you're just hanging from a bar. There's a lot of force being placed on the shoulder, placed on the forearm within them and, you know, every muscle in between. So if we were to get good at hanging, how can I just build iron shoulders and iron forearms just from that alone? So, um, every kid we have every day comes in and hangs, you know, from whether it be for a minute, they kind of just hang until they can't. Um, some of the kids, as they get older, will start working into more one arm hanging because that places a little more stress on the forearm, just on your throwing side and so on and so forth. But the, the hanging man, it's, um, it's just been some that we've been able to incorporate where all these kids hang until failure. And you're seeing a lot of guys not have as many arm problems. Um, on top of it, the long duration ISOs, you know, we, we're, we're doing a lot of deep ISO pushups. We're trying to get these kids into deeper planes of motion, allow them to uh, get a little deeper into the pack, get a little, get the scaps a little more attracted and, you know, being able to mimic a shape that you're going to see a lot of players in when they throw. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, I mean, Kyle Rogers essentially uh, opened that door for me, I guess, at, at, to the to the basic level. I don't know if I understood it at that point, more viewed it as like protective mechanism. Uh, and, you know, like I was I have a powerlifting background, so I'm familiar with Jordan Shallow and all those people. But essentially building body armor around the shoulder will protect the shoulder. And that's something that was popular in powerlifting. I think I heard like uh eric spoto say that at one point um like 700 pound venture eric spoto was like the first one i heard kind of say that and uh it didn't really click until k raj said uh like from a throwing position like you're training the the muscles involved in the throw from throwing position and then went into the pack fly and the pack fly i understood that you were creating a shape but you were driving internal rotation from that shape so i couldn't really understand that and then when somebody pulled out the, like the deep push-up ISO again, it's another exercise I looked at, like, why would you do that? Like, yes, cool, good stretch, whatever. Until I realized that you're like actively having to pull yourself into like a very, very important shape and max retraction of the throw. 
to try and get into those positions. So again, it just becomes like another tool to help you kind of get in touch with musculature. That's important for all that. It's the same thing as like, if you don't have any mind muscle connection in, you know, your, your bicep, like you're never going to get a bicep pump. You won't know where your bicep is in space. Somebody tells you to curl your arm. You're going to do that using other things. You're going to, you're going to compensate to get there. So by like creating those feels, especially in the hang almost, it's like, you're putting them in a position where it's like, okay, if you want to hang longer, we have to engage all of that stuff that's around the UCL, around those fragile regions. Like you're not going to use the ligament in the throw. Like you're going to use the musculature around it. We just made a connection between all of your fingers because you're hanging from a barbell. Like there's, there's some deeper like neurology to that that allows you to be a little more pain-free if you want to call it that. And I think that's really cool about the hanging stuff. Right. There absolutely is. Like, I mean, you know, you, you get a kid up on a bar and you just tell him to normally dead hang and he just hangs there for a while. And, you know, uh, scap gets forced in a pretty good position on top of it. The shoulder and the rotator cuff are just working to try and not pull your arm out of socket. Right. Cause that's what happens when we throw. Like every time we throw, it creates that distraction force and it's, it, our body is basically preventing itself from ripping our shoulder out of socket. Which like is basic, is which is basic sport prep, right? You want to prepare right. for situations that happen in sport, but in the baseball world, it's always been no, 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 no rest, ice, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, why don't we simulate mm -hmm. distraction force in prep? It's the same idea right. as a football lineman who doesn't prep for any contact and then gets on the field and has a contact injury in the first week of camp. It doesn't make any sense to me and it never will. Why aren't we placing those demands on the kids? Your body is not fragile. You will adapt to whatever kind of training you'll get in. No, exactly. And I think that's like the biggest problem with, you know, how the mindset of people is, right? It's the same ideas like people being told to, or told not to bench, like pitchers being told not to bench for such a long time because it hurts the shoulder. We, we just continue to think of our body as such a fragile being and we don't try and train it for what it actually is capable of doing. Like the hanging itself, it's, it's definitely not easy. Like you, you gotta be kind of forceful on yourself to make yourself hang for a long time or even stay in a deep ISO in some sense, whether it be a push-up or the top of a dip, the bottom of a dip, a lunge, a Jefferson ISO split squat. Like that stuff is not easy to do, but you got to train your body to handle stress at end ranges and also within the musculature, right? Like when, when I was talking to Liam about, you know, how he's able to throw the way he does with the torn UCL, it made me completely rethink my idea of what the UCL actually does. Like it's, it's just a placeholder. It doesn't mean anything. If I'm able to take the stress away from that area and put it in the forearm and put it in the bicep and tricep and shoulder and just make my arm like an iron sleeve, like I'm able to completely change any idea I have of throwing. I think that idea needs to be applied now. Now that it's it's here in baseball and the and again I'm gonna bring Connor back into this here in like basketball here we can look at interest regions and kind of simulate that same kind of concept I believe. Uh, Connor, what's the most prevalent injury in basketball? And let's reverse engineer this process. We got ten minutes left. I think this is oh, a I fun little it. activity for us. Uh, ankle easily. Ankle. Now so, you yeah. Well, well, so okay. Across men's and females, we'll go ankle. I mean, females, obviously, you get more ACLs. But, like, right. ankles That's is the one, bad. right, where you just get chronic, right, usually chronic acute injuries over time, right? Most of the time, you know, they're not, you know, strenuous or extremely serious, right? You're going to be out for maybe a week, you know, come back, and then you're good back to, you know, back to go. 
So are are there like rolls, or is it like a, like the mechanism like rolling or like landing on it, or is it just like? Yeah, we, we, yeah, one hundred percent rolling. Okay, what if in in inversion one hundred percent? So if we think about this the exact same way, if like okay, like the throw is a dangerous distraction force, then rolling the ankle is a dangerous distraction force. How do you roll the ankle in like a safe environment? So, uh, hmm. well, here's, here, here would be my thought. You go split squat ISOs on like the slant slant boards and inversion and inversion. Yep. Damn fucking and, uh, right. Uh, you do. do. Do you remember? And like, honestly, yep. I tried that and my did. was awful and I, I just couldn't even get into it. <laughs> Yeah, no, you. I do actually remember you doing and that. Gr- granted, right. I only did. Granted, I only did it for you know like two weeks, but maybe that's something I got to revisit. And I think I just think that there's there's a, a broad app. I mean, baseball honestly kind of has enough freedom. I think it has freedom a lot more than other sports, especially like basketball, football. Those things are very highly controlled and very high pressure. Like if you mess up, you lose your job big time. And the same is true in baseball coaching and stuff like that, but not to that extent. So mm-hmm. I think I think just like my point of that was that we can absolutely apply that. And I think you already have strategically yeah. applied that. Obviously, I saw you try to do the slam board ISOs and stuff like that, but getting more. We'll see. With- well, here, here, here's here's part of the problem with that. When maybe I just got to take the girls, take their socks off. Um, when we would go in our socks, the foot would slide off the slant board because it's like sort of slick. But in their when they have their you know basketball shoes on it sort of just defeats the purpose because they're you know high t- high tops covering the the ankle yeah it's very fair man but you know we've we've on our side we've done a bunch of weird things already and a bunch of more weird things keep happening so i think that's something that the rest of sport can kind of take from baseball if if nothing else i think that we need to get a little bit more creative with uh with our solutions for injury prevention yeah absolutely i mean i think air quotes yeah i'm thinking i think in terms of that like i i feel like when you really break it down injury prevention you can't you know you can't truly injury prevention isn't real i threw up air quotes and i realized we're never going to use the video for this you guys are probably just think i'm an idiot but it's not not real but it's just simple you know how much can my tissue tolerate and it's going to, my body's going to tell me when my tissue can't tolerate much more. So it's, but we have to train under- that. We right, have no, to exactly, train that. Right? Nobody that's, trains that. Why right, don't we do saying. that? Because we're fragile. So, <laughs> so you, you think about that and you say, okay, well, my tissue can't tolerate this. So now I actually have to train it to do it more, which it sounds counterintuitive, but the truth of it is, is like, if I cannot get my arm or say my ankle like into a position where I can create strength through an inverse or eversion type movement or, uh, you know, where my, the bottom of my tibia rotates internally or externally. Well, of course I'm going to get hurt every time I take a step. It's the same thing as throwing. If I never do any hanging and I never like one of my favorite hanging exercises besides one arm hangs is where I start in a supinated position with my one arm and I just let myself go in the air and I let myself rotate all the way around because now my whole body is working into the hang. Like my scapula is moving the, uh, my shoulder is going from IR to ER. 
it, it everything's everything's working in a different plane of motion while having this distraction force on one arm single-handedly so like why don't we train that more it's i gotta do it if i'm gonna do it 75 times in a game throwing as hard as i freaking can like that's just the truth of it for sure we uh we got about three and a half minutes left here so i'm gonna just rip you unless connor do you have anything before we get into that I'll let me, you, you rip away. Okay, All let's right. do it. This is just, I guess, a question that we've asked a few other people, but I, I like to leave on the snow. It's my favorite, I okay. guess. Okay. Um, when you're, you know, old and gray, this is going to get deep, right? But yeah. <laughs> when, you're, when you're old and gray and it's all... And you only have three minutes. Yeah, and you only, yeah, less than that now because I'm going to waste a little bit more time by talking. Okay, um, okay. What legacy... You know, what do you want to leave behind? Legacy is a tough one, man. I mean, I think, I think if I'm going to leave any legacy or any memory of me behind, it's just going to be really how I engaged with all the kids that I trained. Like it's, it's not going to be like, I don't want any, I, I guarantee no kid's going to remember like, Oh yeah, he took my squat max from like 200 to 400. Like he's not going to remember that. Or like this guy took me from 79 to 92 on the mound like that's just not going to be what it is it's going to be you know developing relationships with these guys and being remembered for how i worked with them and how i treated them and how these guys are going to be able to remember any time that we joked around or had a funny moment or whatever it may be it's it's going to come back to that at all times like it, it's always going to be the you know uh matt believed in me or matt hopefully allowed me to uh be as expressive as i can and be myself like it's it's always going to be personality trait wise it's not going to be any training characteristic or number respect i love it yep yep all right on that note that was episode 10 of the performance street podcast we did it we made it to 10 episodes i didn't think we'd get here but here here we are major milestone stone we're in the uh we're in the double digits nice honored um, to be the 10th guest love yeah, it yeah matt i would tell you to plug yourself but let's be honest we're going to post this on social media and that's going to have all the pull it needs uh gotcha. because honestly millions and millions of people listen to this podcast and they also follow us on instagram so uh this is going to be huge for your career and uh i'm glad <laughs> that you got on got on here and did this with us 